Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Caesar Midlife. I am so grateful you are here today. So about a year ago, I was on Facebook and I saw that a girl that I went to high school with wrote a book. So out of curiosity, I went to Amazon and read the description and I was like, ooh, that is intriguing. So I buy this book and I devour it. And then I tell my friend about it and she calls me right away to be like, oh my gosh, I cannot put this book down. And then just recently, my younger brother gets this book and calls to say to me, oh my God, I read this book in two days. This is so, so good. And the book that I am referring to is called Truth Matters, Love Wins. A Memoir of Choosing Faith Over Fear in the Face of False Accusations. This book is number one in five different categories on Amazon. And the author of this amazing book that I'm talking about is Alex Cusis, who is my guest today. I am so excited. You are not going to want to miss her incredible and frankly pretty crazy story. But first, I just want to share Alex's bio with you. Alex Cusis is a professional organizer, a best-selling, award-winning author, a life coach who thrives at the intersection of truth and kindness. She believes our homes are our sanctuaries and our mindsets matter the most. By taking care of both, we set a foundation for designing lives we truly love. Her coaching practice, Soul Fitness Coaching, joyfully empowers human beings around the world to do exactly that, one habit and one breath at a time. So welcome to the show, Alex. Oh, thank you so much, Bree. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Ah, I'm so excited. Okay, so I always say this is the only podcast where I think it's appropriate that the first question is, how old are you? <laughs> I am 47 years old. 47. All right. Mm-hmm. And where are you right now? I am in my home right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Awesome. But you did not grow up in Nashville. You grew up in Wisconsin, right? That's right. <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, I mean, you graduated from Wauwatosa East, as did Mm -hmm. I, and you end up going to UW-Madison, and after you graduate from college, you decide to move out to Colorado, and how did that happen? 
It was sort of a, a spontaneous decision. A friend of mine from high school had moved out to Colorado immediately after high school. And when I graduated college, he called and said, I am moving to Boulder to finish my undergrad. I think you'd love Boulder. Do you want to move out here and we can be roommates and just sort of live in Colorado? And I thought, well, that's intriguing. And, and I said, yes. And it literally before the conversation hadn't really been on my radar. <laughs> so you move out to Colorado and you don't have a job to go to. So you end up getting a job as a nanny and working at a gym. Mm-hmm. Um But then it sounds like, you know, obviously you want something more consistent, you need health insurance, and so you end up getting a job at a local preschool. Mm -hmm. And it's at this preschool that you meet, as you call them in the book, Family X, right? That is accurate. I began as an infant teacher at that school, and Loretta from the book joined my classroom as a three-month-old baby. Okay. And so did you immediately form a relationship with the whole family? Um, I wouldn't say immediately. I would say slowly but surely. It uh, Obviously, I had the most contact with little Loretta, spent, you know, all day, five days a week with her and truly adored her, just like the rest of the babies in the classroom. And then, you know, slowly but surely, became friends with her parents. I offered to babysit for her, which was a practice encouraged at the school. And I sat for many, many other families as well already. So and they took me up on it. And so I'd babysit for her. I'd take her you know, home after school sometimes, like I'd sign her out and take her back to her house, things like that. And, and yes, a relationship, a friendship began to grow with the whole family. And somewhere during this time, your engagement breaks off. And it sounds like it was a really difficult situation that left you needing to find a new place to live. So what happened there? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, it, it was sort of a oh, questionable at best kind of relationship. And then it was kind of an ugly, if you will, breakup. And... I did. I needed kind of somewhere else to live. And the ex family offered for me to move in with them. They had a spare room so I could sort of find my footing underneath me and just get past kind of that ugliness. And uh, in exchange for paying them rent, as it were, the agreement was that I would just help out with the kiddos. And by this time, they had a second daughter. So there were two girls and they were both going to the school where I still worked. And so we sort of worked out an arrangement like that. And during this time, it seems like you just really become part of their family, right? Yes. Yes. I loved them dearly. And they, um, I mean, they love me right back. We definitely was very close with the kiddos. I was very close again with the parents and was kind of always there. Yeah, and you talked about how you would do outdoor things with the dad and, you you know, you'd go to lunch with the mom. Like, you were very involved on a lot of different levels with the ex-family. Very much so. Even vacationing with them as well. Yeah, it was like I was a nanny, but again, that wasn't really the official title, if you will. It was like, we can help you out. Why don't you come on? 
let us help you. And then, yeah, I would do things with the dad, uh, Angus, that mom wasn't interested in, you know, rock climbing, bike riding, things like that. And I would do things with the mom, Ivy, that Angus wasn't really interested in, you know, manicures, (laughs) shopping, things like that. So I kind of morphed. I just fit into the family as, as like a friend, nanny combination. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. But at some point you move, actually a couple times, you move to Hawaii and then to Santa Barbara. But during this time when you're moving, do you stay in touch with the Axe family? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I moved out of their house to Boulder. Then I moved to Denver. Then I moved to Hawaii. Then I moved to Santa Barbara. And the whole time I was still very much in touch, uh, involved, very involved when I lived in Boulder and in Denver, and then just very much in touch when I lived in Hawaii and California. And at that time, even the girls came to visit you a couple times, right? They did. They did. Ivy, the mom, helped me move to California, and she came to visit and again after that, and she offered the idea, what if the girls come visit you for spring break. And so that is what they did um, two years in a row. They flew out on their own and they were like in the six to eight years old kind of time range, seven to nine, right in there. Okay. So they flew out on an airplane both years by themselves. And I was at the other end to pick them up. And we spent both years, we spent really, really fun weeks having all kinds of adventures around Southern California. Aww. And th- But then at some point you end up moving back to Colorado, right? I did after two years in California. So in 2009, I moved back to Colorado. But you weren't in the same neighborhood or even the same town as the ex-family at this point. No, I lived quite a ways away. There was maybe, you know, 90 minutes in between us. But did you still end up seeing them? Yes, quite a bit. In fact, the very first year that I was back, we set up Um, a weekly, oh, I don't know, date, I guess, kind of thing where I would drive the 90 minutes north, I would have lunch with Ivy, and then I'd go pick the kids up from school on those days on those Tuesdays or Wednesdays, it's fluctuated a little bit, but once a week, and then I'd have the kids that night, I would do homework with them, I would feed them dinner, any after school activities. And Ivy and Angus would have a night to themselves to work late or go out or, you know, do the Christmas shopping, whatever they needed to do on that night, that was sort of their night off. And then they would come home after the kids were in bed. Sometimes I'd sleep over in their guest room, but more often than not, I would make the drive back home afterwards. And during this time when you're kind of going back and forth and you're, you know, kind of living away from them, you end up meeting your future husband. Yes, we met in January of 2012. So I'd been back in Colorado for a couple of years at that point. So when you go to get married, do you include the ex-family in your wedding? Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> what does that look like? <laughs> um, uh, Loretta and Rose, the two girls, were junior bridesmaids along with my husband's niece. By this time, they had a younger brother, Slater, and he was one of our ring bearers, along with my husband's nephew. And I did this thing in my wedding where my bouquet was created by my, I didn't really have bridesmaids, but I had 
some of my best friends line the aisle that I walked down and they each held one of their favorite flowers. And as I walked down, I collected one, you know, from each person, their favorite flower. And that made up my bouquet. And Ivy was the person who orchestrated that and sort of, uh, she was the last person to give me a flower. She tied it all together. And then all of those beautiful ladies sat down. So only my sister stood up next to me, but Ivy was very instrumental as well. And Ivy, just to clarify for everybody, is the mom of the X family, right? That's right. That's okay. Right. Okay. So obviously something goes awry. Is there some big falling out or something like that after your wedding or what happens? Yeah. So we got married in September of 2012. And in the spring of 2013, you know, long story short, I woke up and went to where their house is and spent the day with them at Loretta's track meet and then back at the house with them. And when I left, I went home, my husband and I entertained, had dinner guests that night. The very next morning, I got a text message from Rose, the younger uh, daughter, that said, I know you've been lying to us. I know you smoke pot. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, what is this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And and where like were you like where did she get this idea? 100%. I called Ivy immediately and Rose answered her phone and she was just hysterical. Um and I tried to, you know, I calmly said, you know, why do you think this? Where do you where did you get this idea? How did this come up in conversation? And she wouldn't really tell me. She was just I mean having trouble breathing. She was so upset how could I do this? How could I do this to my body? I mean, she was really, she was, you know, like 10 and uh, just really, really sad about it. And I couldn't really get to the bottom of it. I eventually talked to Ivy and she just was like, huh, yeah, I don't know. That's so weird. It was really confusing. So was it before or after this that you go to a spring concert or something like that and you see the girls mm-hmm. and something just feels off? It was about a week later. Yeah, I'd already had that had already been on the calendar. That was the thing I did. I went to all their school concerts, you know, I donated to all their school auctions, so on and so forth. So I went to Loretta's concert and Rose sat in my lap the whole time, played with my earrings. Slater, the little boy, he was so excited to see me. When Loretta finished her concert, she came over to where we all were, you know, Ivy and Angus and everybody. And I watched. Ivy grab Loretta by her upper arm and kind of squeeze it and say, go hug her. And Loretta came over to give me a hug and I was mortified. I mean, I have body safety training certifications. You know, I've, I've my degree is in early childhood education. My master's is in early childhood education. You don't ever force a child to provide affection for somebody. And I just couldn't mortified and confused. And I cried all the way home because I did not understand what was happening. Yeah. And so then what did you make of it? Like what what did you say to yourself walking out of there? Were you like, okay, I'm just going to take a break from them? Or what? where was your head at? Yeah. Like I said, I was very sad. And I did sort of decide I – this is something I, again, don't understand. And so I'm going to just take a step back. I don't know how to navigate 
these like murky waters. Loretta at the time was 13 and it was just so strange. It was a different side of her that I hadn't really seen. And so I did, I decided just to kind of back off a little bit and maintained a friendship with Ivy who consistently was telling me they just need some time. They just need some time. And so I just sort of trusted that. Yeah. Interesting. And just so that people like are are tracking all of this, Loretta is the older of the two girls Correct. who you started watching in daycare when she was a baby, right? Correct. Okay. So fast forward, you know, you some years go by. It's 2016. How much have you seen the X family between that concert and that year of 2016? I've had lunch with Ivy uh, at the end of that the concert summer, so a few months after the concert, and I had cards for each of the kids just saying, I hope you had a great summer. I miss you. I'd love to see you soon. I was connected on social media with Ivy, Loretta, Rose was on Instagram, but I had not laid eyes on anybody since Ivy and I had had that lunch, and I hadn't seen the girls or the kids since that concert. So it had been like three years, right? Three and a half years, yes. Okay. So 2016, you have a friend from Wisconsin actually mm-hmm. visiting and you guys have tickets to a concert. So you and your husband and your friend are just hanging out in your backyard, having a beer, getting ready for the concert. And what happens? The doorbell rings. Uh. <laughs> yeah, the doorbell rings. And my husband, James, and I kind of exchange, you know, looks just like, I don't, do you know? I don't know. He goes to answer it. My friend goes in and goes downstairs to get ready because we're leaving in like 15 minutes. I mean, it's like we're on our way out the door pretty much. And I tidy up on the back porch. I walk into the house. I can hear my husband's raised voice. And I think, oh, dear, what's this about? And I go over to the front door, and they're actually looking for me. There are like four people standing, police officers and a female bounty hunter standing on the front porch saying they've, you know, come for me. (laughs) They've come to take me in kind of thing. And they won't really tell me what's going on. Wow. So did they then arrest you, handcuff you? What happens? They didn't arrest me. They did handcuff me. They, I mean, some other man showed up and said, look, here's the deal. Your house is surrounded. You're not leaving here unless it's with us. And they said, we can take you straight to jail or we can take you to the person, like to the detective who sent us and you can talk to him. And you know, to get a sense of what this is all about. They said something about endangerment of a child. You're being you know, accused of endangering a child. And now I have worked with hundreds of children over the years. I have been involved in the education industry in some capacity or another since, you know, I started babysitting at like age 12. Right. So at this point, you have no idea what this is about. Zero clue. Zero clue. My mind is just like Rolodexing every child I knew, <laughs> you know, and for for who knows when this is from, who knows. I just, I couldn't figure it out. 
Oh my gosh. And are you kind of thinking like, okay, guys, I'm walking away here in handcuffs, but like, don't worry, I'm going to, I'm going to get this straightened out and I'm going to be back. Like we're going to this concert. Like, is that where your head's at? 100%. I even, you know, my friend shows up from, like I said, she'd gone to the guest room. She shows up. She's like, what is going on? I said to the officers, I heard a little voice in my head that said, just go like, you know, just go. Clearly this is a mistake. When are you ever going to have the chance to see the other side, like the inside of this system? Go see what this is all about. I said to my husband, the tickets are on my bulletin board. Will you take her? Because my husband wasn't coming to the concert. Just she and I were going. I said, would you take her to the concert? And he <laughs> he was like, no, <laughs> I absolutely not. I'm going to get on the phone and try and figure out what this is all about. But I literally thought I would go have this conversation. We would get to the bottom of this and all would be well. I would have thought the same thing. I would have literally been like, okay, you know, they've got the wrong person. There's been some mistake. Like I am in an hour going to be standing at this concert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can totally see why you thought that, but that's not the case. And they deliver you to the detective. And what is that conversation like? We spoke for a couple hours and it was a very difficult conversation. Like, again, I was just, I mean, looking back, I was in a little bit of shock, but I was just very confused. I understood in the moment, I understood the gravity of what I was sort of up against, if you will. And I just didn't know what to say. You know, they say, don't ever, ever, ever talk to the police without a lawyer present. But I just thought, well, I, this is foolishness. I'm just going to talk to them. We're going to figure this out. We're going to Again, I'm going to be able to explain myself because there's nothing here in my past that warrants this kind of accusation. And he just wasn't really interested, really, in hearing what I had to say. Because at this point, did he tell you who was making the accusation? He did. First, he we did this whole rigmarole about, you know, are you, really? You don't know why you're here? Really? I was like, sir, <laughs> I am being serious. I do not know what you're talking about, what this is about. And so then he did say that. He said, do you know a Loretta? And I was like, uh, yep, I do. And then that was, you know, then the conversation got a little more pointed. And he was just asking questions like, has she ever been to your house? Had she ever stayed the night at your house? And the answer to those questions was yes, they had. I had... I had lots of, uh, you know, instances where Loretta and Rose both stayed over. And so it was, that was all he needed to hear. He was like, okay, well then you're under arrest. Oh my God. So they arrest you. And at this point, like, did they take you to a jail or where do you go from here? Yes, they did. They took me to, it wasn't like a jail, like you like see in the, you know, TV shows or whatever, where everybody's sitting in one sell together. It was a holding place, I guess. It was this big, huge room that was just like, and we had to go through big, heavy doors and check in things and all sorts of stuff to get there. But it was this big room, police officers everywhere, individual cells along the back wall, and then a men's side and a woman's side. And it was just all open. And I was the only woman <laughs> in the whole place. And I just, I sat there you know, they do your mugshot and your fingerprints and they have you sign something saying that 
you know, you're of sound mind, you understand why you're there, which was hard for me to sign. I'll be honest with you. I was like, well, I get what you're saying, but I still don't understand why I'm here. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You're like, can I write like a caveat here? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. So, okay. So you're there and then you said that something kind of happens at one in the morning. What is that? Well, that is when I left that room. And now they came to get me at four o'clock in the afternoon. So it has been, I mean, I literally could have gone to this concert and still come in to talk with them afterwards. <laughs> but uh, wow. I, so I was there for a very, very long time. And at, in the moment, I was furious. And now looking back, I am able to see it almost as a kindness because in that room, they had a TV on. I watched, you know, the Bronco game was on. Then Silly sitcoms came on and I had access to a payphone that I could make collect calls from as many as I wanted. And the seats weren't comfortable, but I could I could move around freely. I didn't because every time I moved, there was attention given to me from the other side of the room that I was not into. Uh, so I tried to stay as still as I could and like kind of put my hair over my face and, and whatnot. But uh, once they moved me at one o'clock, I went into a locked cell. They had me change into jail clothes, prison clothes. I'm not quite sure, but yellow and white striped outfit with like soccer sandals and had to give all my jewelry and what I was wearing over to the guard. And then, like I said, I went into a single cell by myself. So, you know, given the single cell or this room with the TV, I guess it wasn't so bad that I sat there (laughs) in the room for so long since the cell was the other, the other option. Oh my gosh. So, okay. I can't even imagine how scared you must have been and freaked out and all the things. So are they telling you you have a bail? What, what are they saying to you? Nothing. I mean, I, at that point, nothing. They're, they're saying to me, come this way, go sit down. We'll be right back with a, you know, mattress. They were telling me nothing. And so I just, I fell asleep best I, you know, best I could that night, the next day, they're still telling me nothing. They come in to ask, what's my cell phone provider? I mean, all kinds of logistic questions. I did eventually go the next day to have bail set. And what was that? $50,000. Oh, my goodness. I mean, there's not many people that have $50,000 at the ready. So how did you guys handle that? Well, yeah, we didn't either. <laughs> But that is where bails bondsmen come in. That is exactly why a bails bondsman exists. We did have $7,000. And that is what we paid for this bails bondsman to front the rest of the money for me. Because when you put bail money forward, and then you show up every time and you go through to the natural conclusion of your case, you get that money back. Okay. Yeah, so I signed an agreement with a bails bondsman saying, you pay this money, I'll show up to all my appointments, you'll get this money back at the end. And then the $7,000 is his fee for doing that. I mean, did you ever think in a million years that your vernacular would include the word bails <laughs> bondsman? No, that's not, no, mm-mm. that's not the I mean, that's life I'd, crazy. I'd lived. <laughs> Right. You're like a you master degree, like yeah, great citizen of the world. Like, how is this happening? Oh my gosh. 
Okay, so since the time that they came to your house and put you in handcuffs, how much time passed before you were able to go home? So that was a Thursday afternoon that they came to get me, and I was released on Sunday. So I was there for a few nights, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. I got bail on Friday, and they said, oh, yeah, we'll get it figured out. And then, oh, they didn't. And then something, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you actually need pre-trial. Oh, dear. Maybe, hmm, I'm not sure if they're going to be here. I mean, the guards were just really lackadaisical. It doesn't, didn't matter to them. And I was, I was like, please, please, could you make a call and find out? Like, I need to know. And so I had to go through and get like an ankle bracelet and, you know, the whole kit and caboodle before they, they could release me, even though my husband had posted bail already. So you had to leave with an ankle bracelet? Yes. Oh my gosh. This is just crazy. Yeah. That cost me $11 a day. (laughs) Wow. Crazy town. Okay. So when you finally get home, do you feel like you are in the fight for your life at this point? Yeah. I was pretty scared. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I'm a big... I'm a visualizer. I am a manifester. I am a law of attraction person. I spent a lot of time in that cell picturing a perfect outcome. Like I spent a lot of time rehearsing not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, even though, you know, innocent, innocent is really the energy you want to be drawing toward you. But not guilty is what they give you, right, to work with. So I did a lot of meditating, of visualizing while I was in there. And once I got home, that I just stepped that up. Wow. And I just imagine that the betrayal and hurt and everything that you feel from or about the ex-family just must be so intense for you. Yes. It was a roller coaster. Roller coaster. I'd still you know, as, as recently as the Thursday before (laughs) I had still been assuming that one day we would, you know, make our way back to each other, maybe some growing pains in the relationship. I'd gotten married. Um, the girls were getting older. It, I, I fully assumed that it was just sort of a pause in what had for literally over a decade been a very loving relationship. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so you think back on this conversation where Ivy asked you to talk mm. about abuse that you had experienced from your own babysitter with her girls. Can you just talk a little bit about that conversation and kind of how that all went down? Absolutely. Again, long story short, I had been sexually abused by a babysitter when I was a very young girl. Like four years old, young, and had never told anybody. I had kept that secret very close to my chest. Didn't tell my parents, didn't tell my sister, just did not share that until I got much older. And I talked about it in therapy and I shared with a few close friends. It felt like something that I, you know, needed to acknowledge. I needed to work through. And Ivy was one of the close friends that I shared it with. And Ivy said to me, would you talk to my girls about what happened to you? She said, you have such a strong relationship with your parents. You talk of your childhood as being a really great one. And yet this terrible thing happened to you. 
And I just fear that something like this could be happening underneath my nose to my own kids. Will you tell them about what happened to you? Will you make it clear that you are a person they can talk to in addition to me, to, you know, dad, to grandma, to teachers, to blah, 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 all these people. And I thought about it long and hard because I still, it was not something that I freely, openly talked about at that point. But I ultimately decided to do it because I was invested in the safety of the girls as well. And so I told her I would. So when you hear what Loretta is saying, it kind of feels like she took your story and made it hers. That is 100% what happened. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That is just, oh, so bizarre. And also, I imagine maddening. Yeah, especially when you're in a legal situation like this, there is something called discovery. And that is anything that the other side collects as quote unquote, you know, evidence or any interviews they do or anything that gets submitted, you get to see. So I got transcripts of every interview that happened with anybody from the other side, etc. And in one of the pieces of discovery, Rose said, well, didn't that happen to Alex? Wasn't Alex hurt by a babysitter too? And Loretta responded to her and said, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. And Ivy said, oh, I never knew that. <laughs> Ooh, but you're like, yeah, actually you did. Wow. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, actually you did. And actually I have it in writing, so. Oh, Mm-hmm. My goodness. Okay, so you have yes. a lawyer, oh, yeah. I'm assuming, that's, you know, fighting for you. You're collecting evidence mm-hmm. on your own, you know, behalf. Um, and at some point, it sounds like you were offered a plea deal. Yes, I was offered quite a few plea deals. Gosh, I'd have to go back to actually count. But it was in the ballpark of like four, five, six different plea deals over the course of the two years. And I steadfastly refused to entertain any of them. And how were you feeling? Like, why were you like, nope, there's no way I'm taking any of these plea deals? Because even though my lawyers, I hired a lawyer and then he hired a partner and they both worked on my case. So even though my lawyers just could could not believe the quality of plea deals that were coming my way um, and, and strongly encouraged me to take more than one of them on more than one occasion. They'd say, this is, you don't, I don't know if you understand how amazing this plea deal is. You go talk to 50 lawyers and 49 of them are going to be like gobsmacked at the amazing deal you're getting. And I would reply and say, it's only an amazing deal if you've done the thing they're accusing you of doing. It's not an amazing deal. If you have not done that thing, you're just living your life. And this hellscape swoops in and like tries to take you out with the tide. This is not a good deal. This is still something, you know, I will not accept. Because in a plea deal, you would have had to say, yes, I'm guilty, right? Correct. 
Yeah, and you just – I mean, you knew mm-hmm. in your heart of hearts, like, there is not an iota of truth here, and it doesn't matter. I'm going to fight for my truth. That's exactly right. I knew the alternative to taking a plea deal is a, jur- a jury trial. And my lawyers were just adamant that, you you know, we cannot guarantee how that will go. And I was at peace knowing if a jury decides – to send me, I will go with my head held high because the, the the price, the exchange here was life in prison. That's what I was up against. Oh my God. Um, there were seven felony charges, three separate accusations of sexual misconduct with a child. Each of those accusations had another count because I was I was in a position of trust. And then the seventh was the pattern that those three accusations would indicate. Those were the seven felony charges. And because the pattern was part of that, had they found me guilty of the pattern, it would have been automatic life in prison that, you know, you can do parole and and appeal and all that kind of stuff. But that the the gist was, (laughs) if you don't take a plea deal... You're th- you're playing with this kind of fire. Oh my god, so scary! And also, when I read your book, and then also in our follow up conversation, I just kept thinking, like, we have heard since the time we are born in this country, you are innocent until proven guilty. Mm. But it didn't feel like that was the case for you, literally at all. No, that is a that I talk about this a little bit in the book. Uh, that is a myth that our country tells itself to perhaps feel better about itself. I don't know, but that is not, that's an ideal. That's not the practice. Yeah. You don't walk away with an ankle bracelet if you are saying you're innocent until proven mm-hmm. guilty. Like that's just crazy. And I just imagine how helpless you must have felt. And I I just, I can't even imagine the weight of all these things, you know, stacked up against you through all of this. So at what point do you finally go to trial? Uh, Trial actually began in April of 2018. So two, almost two full years later? Uh, Yeah. Well, September of 2016, Trial was scheduled for November of 17, but we had to postpone because of witness availability. And then so a year and a half later, April of 2018. Wow. And you told me just briefly, and you also talk about this in the book, just the outpouring of love and support Mm. you felt from not only your close circle, but people's lives you had touched all around you. What was that like? And who were the people? And how did that come you know, into light at the trial. Sure. It was a saving grace is what that all amounts to. Um, at the very beginning, when it all started, my lawyer was like, okay, shh, just keep quiet, lay low, do not post anything on social media, do not talk to anybody who calls to ask about this. Like I had a call from a reporter, that kind of thing. Do not talk to just keep your circle close. And <laughs> I took some of that advice. And also I didn't. <laughs> I say, you know, my circle, as it were, ended up being um, pretty cast pretty wide. 
he had asked me, my lawyer asked me to find uh, or to ask trusted people for letters of character reference, especially if they could attest to my interactions with this family. And I took that directive and I ran with it. I made close to 75 phone calls over the course of like two to three days, just repeat people I hadn't talked to in decades. I mean, ages. And I gathered uh, close to 75 letters of support. And my lawyer was just gobsmacked. He thought, he said, I don't know if I could get this many letters if I went out there. But I, I realized so quickly the importance of people keeping me in their thoughts, mm. of people, you know, rooting for me. And so we developed kind of a, a little group of people from all ages and stages of my life who were interested and invested in watching this case progress. Wow. And so you could feel their positive energy in the midst of such a dark place all around you. Yes. My sister created a private Facebook group for everybody to get updates. And these people are spread throughout the country and the world. And so this was a place where people could learn the updates and hear kind of what was happening. And I mean, because I was in court, it took a year and a half to go to trial, but I was in court constantly. (laughs) Like we were, I was always there for something or another. There were just, I talk about it in the books. We don't, I don't need to detail any of it here, but there was just, there were so many twists and turns. And that was a place that everyone could kind of keep up with things without needing to talk to me directly or personally. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So in this time, you know, you're in court, you're in trial. Mm -hmm. I imagine you have to come face to face with Loretta and the rest of the ex-family. How did that go? Yes. So that actually happened before trial, but it did happen in the courtroom. The very first time that I went to court, Ivy and Angus came as well. And so that's when I first saw them. And then throughout, like I said, the year and a half, so many court dates. And at one of them, Loretta showed up and my lawyer said, well, that's very unorthodox. And the district attorney came over who was you know, representing them and said, oh, she just wanted to see what it was like. So she came to court a couple of times before trial started. And it was, I mean, there, <laughs> you know, I, I, like I said, I've worked a lot on meditating and visualizing and staying in my peace and sending love out like from the very beginning. I was asking all my friends to send love in the direction of my accuser because I am a just firm believer that what you put out is what comes back. And I knew that if we just sent love out, that's what would need to come back. And so that was my baseline, but that does not mean that I was like rainbows and butterflies throughout that whole time. There was rage and there was fury and there was, there were so many tears. And when I first laid eyes on her, I just felt this swell of like disappointment. Like, honey, what are you doing? Yeah. I can't (laughs) even imagine. Yeah. I mean, in part because of where I stood and how unjust and how just like effed up the whole thing was. And in part, because I was like, what are you, what you put out is what you get back. What are you doing to yourself? Right. There was still that element of being protective or or feeling something for her. Like my heart was breaking for her. 
because up, up until that day in 2016, I had loved her deeply. I loved the whole family deeply. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like, and you've reiterated this through our whole conversation, is that you, you know, maintained a spirit of love and of peace, which I can imagine was quite challenging. But do you think that those skills and that you kind of came into this with that attitude helped you stay positive in the midst of just such darkness? 100%. Definitely. I mean, there's just no doubt in my mind. Like I said, the support of people who loved me and wanted good for me was fundamental. So equally as helpful was, I hesitate to use the word self-care because that's such a buzzword these days, but really, you know, equally important was the way I took care of myself on a regular basis, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you had to stay so strong because this went on for two years of your life. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give away every detail because I want people to buy this amazing book, but you end up being found innocent of all charges, right? Or not guilty is, I guess, the term. Yeah. they Well, they end up dismissing the case after two years. Two years, one month, and 29 days. Not to be exact. (laughs) 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 Oh my gosh. Okay. So I have so many follow-up questions, but, you know, first of all, can I just ask you, have you been able to forgive Loretta and the ex-family? Yes. The short answer is yes. And how? How? Yeah. The, the longer answer is, <laughs> I um, I mean, I worked at it. I, it literally wasn't just like, okay, well, <laughs> that was fun. I worked at it. I took online courses on forgiveness. I, you know, prayed about it. I meditated about it. I looked at it from an intellectual perspective, from a heart-led perspective. I really studied forgiveness. And it's true what they say, right? Forgiveness is, my forgiveness is not for them. My forgiveness, it helps me. They don't need to know about it. They don't need to be involved in it. Forgiving them for for being human, for, you know, getting getting it wrong, that gives me a sense of peace. Otherwise, I'm waking up and I'm mad about it and I'm victimizing myself around it. And that also has nothing to do with them. They're not hurting because I do that. You know what I mean? Like it's it's they're out of the picture completely. It's me deciding how I want to use my energy and how I want to feel. And I think that that's an important message for anybody that's struggling with forgiveness about anything, because the truth is not forgiving is just, a. it's, I, I've said this to you before too, it's like drinking a poison you meant for that person. It hurts you every day to be bitter and angry and to not forgive. Mm-hmm. And there is a lightness that comes in forgiveness, even though it, like you said, it took a lot of work, a lot of work and a lot of intention. Yes. And it still does. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Even just reliving it, I'm sure you feel like it's probably this, you know, feelings of anger and resentment and all of it probably get brought up for you again. Well, and forgiveness is a choice. It's not like a destination. It's not like I checked it off and was like, okay, that's that's that. It's a choice I make 
all the time. I mean, I have flashes where I'm like, oh my God, how messed up was that? And I think about, especially when I look at like Facebook memories or whatever, my life before this happened was so fun. Like it was so good. I was in such a good spot and every, almost, almost everything changed. My marriage stayed strong. And in fact, even we came out the other side stronger. A lot of, a lot of things, my relationships with my close friends, my parents, my sister, like some things got better, but everything that was on the outside of my life at that time fell away and it was not to be rebuilt. In fact, like, you know, I mentioned earlier, I live now live in Tennessee and that was in part just to say, you know what, Colorado, enough. Right. Like <laughs> this was bad juju here. I'm I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so at what point did you say to yourself, this story needs to get out into the world? Yeah. Well, um, I, I mentioned this earlier. I'm I way home from those days in in a jail or whatever. I talked to my sister, I called her and my husband had already been in touch with my family. They were aware of what was happening, but I called my sister on the way home. And one of the things that she said was, Alex, as soon as you get back to your house, write down everything you remember from these past few days. And I took her advice and that is what eventually became chapter one. So really, right at the beginning, I started putting those wheels in motion. And during the course of the two years, I just kept saying, I'm going to write a book about this. I'm going to write a book about this. Because you're not, I was not allowed to just say what I wanted to say. It's a big game that you're playing when you're contending with something like that. Mm -hmm. It's the judge and the lawyers. And you're just sort of a byproduct going, well, hope you don't fuck it up, you know, kind of thing. You, I didn't really have much of, of a say. I could not accept the plea deal, and I did take the stand. It wasn't the like verbal release of truth that I was looking for. And so the book was my chance to say, okay, here's my side of the story. Right. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And so tell people where they can find your book. Yeah, it is on Amazon. It is also on barnesandnoble.com, and we're trying to get it into libraries, but I don't know that we're quite there yet. But Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble are the two fastest ways to find it. Well, I can't even stress enough how much everyone needs to go get this book because it is so oh. incredible. And I will also put a link um, to your website in the show notes um, so pe- people can learn more about you and learn more about the book and about your practice. I think that's so important. But one of the things I just wanted to ask you about, because as I was preparing to interview you, I went on Amazon and I started reading reviews and almost every review said I couldn't put this down. Why do you think that was? Well, I mean, it could be any number of reasons. I think a couple that come to mind. One, a lot of people, I talked about how like I told the world this was happening. That's not entirely true. I told part of the world, right. <laughs> but I also had a professional situation happening where I didn't mention it at all. And in that professional situation, I was coaching women on a, a fitness journey. And a lot of them I'm still in touch with. and 
when I started talking about this and you know publicizing that this story had happened and here I wrote a book about it, people were just shocked that they'd known me during this situation and had zero idea that I was carrying something uh, quite this heavy. And so I think there was a feeling of, my God, I was interacting with her during this and like putting yourself in that time frame. And I also got a lot of feedback where it just, it, people felt like they were with me on the journey as they read it, even if they don't know me, even if they weren't privy to my life at that time. Yeah, it's been, the reviews have been very positive. I've, it has felt good. It's one thing when you put a book out and people are like, oh, I'm so proud of you for writing a book. It's an entirely different thing when they read the book right? <laughs> and then they come back and say, holy moly. Yeah. And that's everyone I've asked because I didn't know you personally. When I got your book, it was, a, you know, overlapping friends that I had seen about your book. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But I definitely walked away from reading your book feeling like I knew you, feeling like I was part of it. And I think, you know, my brother and my other friends were said who didn't know you as well that said, I can't put it down. I think it's... It's also just truly an insane situation and story that you're like, how on earth does this happen to a regular person? How does this happen? There's definitely that too, this this idea of like the shoe can drop at any moment. (laughs) Holy. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So a couple things left that I want to definitely ask you. And one is you said this to me and I I just was just so shocked that this was the word you used, but you said you've come away with some gratitude for the whole situation. How? How is that possible? Yes, I do have gratitude. That situation allowed me to take a really deep, hard look at myself and my life I knew what I was being accused of, I did not do. I knew that what was on paper, there was nothing for me to atone for there. But that doesn't mean that I've always been like the kindest or the most truthful or, you know, the most upright citizen. And so this allowed me a chance to really come correct to myself. When I was going you know, through the, the final plea deal situation, which my lawyer would not take no for an answer until I told him four different times, I, I talked to my inner circle, my husband, my sister, my mother. And my mom said, honey, you need to make the decision that allows you to look yourself in the eye for the rest of your life. And it's just that advice was like, perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just perfect because you can apply it anywhere to any decision. And it really, I look back at, you know, how I handled myself and some of it's just immaturity or where I was, you know, in college or even in high school, or even as a young adult, making decisions just from a place of pure selfishness. And again, this situation was just, it provided me the opportunity to really kind of clean up my act as it were forgiving other people, but also forgiving myself. And I really ended up, we wouldn't have moved to Tennessee if all that hadn't happened. Who knows what would have happened if this hadn't happened. But the things that are happening in my life now are so good. <laughs> They're so good. And it, um, 
it just wouldn't have been that way otherwise. I just think that's just so amazing and your sunny demeanor and your positivity in the face of all these things is just really admirable. And I'm sure there are women listening probably that aren't in jail right now, but that are in really hard or perhaps dark seasons. And what Mm -hmm. message would you send to that woman right now that maybe is lacking hope? Well, there are three brief things. The first is going back to that idea of taking care of yourself, literally seeking out moments of comfort for yourself on a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual level, like really diving in to that aspect. The second is to look for things that bring you joy. Because just because the rug has been pulled out from under you doesn't mean that the rainbow in the sky isn't beautiful, right? So really focusing that it's a both and. You can be in a dark season and have little pinpricks of light looking for those pinpricks of light makes them multiply. Mm, I love that. And the third thing is to work and practice, practice, practice on assuming the best. If there is an outcome that is ideal, why wouldn't that be your outcome? If it's on the realm of possibility, why shouldn't that happen for you? And that is what I held on to. I expected things were working out for the highest good of everybody involved. And that helped me trust the process. Oh, such goodness. And I think that, you know, is is such a good message of saying like, just keep visualizing the best outcome, Mm -hmm. you know? And it sounds like that was really a huge key for you. So thank you for sharing those three things. I think they're really applicable to women, even if they're not in the darkest of seasons, but maybe just in a a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. Those are things that you can practice daily. Well, and the other thing real quick is that even if you're not in a dark season, those are things, those are practices to build up. They're like muscles and they get stronger the more you do them because life is not about avoiding all pain or all tragedy or, you know, these sorts of situations. I couldn't, I couldn't have predicted that this was coming. Life will send you things that bring you to your knees. And if you have a a strong muscle of self-care, of assuming the best, of looking for joy, that's when that'll count. Like that's when that'll show up. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So start practicing it right now. Don't Mm -hmm. wait until you are in a hard place. Yeah. That's that's good advice for everybody. And there was something that I read on your um, Soul Fitness Coaching website that I just wanted to read. It's a quick little bullet point because – I loved it so much. And it was feed the opportunities and starve the problems. Mm. And I just love that. And I feel like that's so much what you did. And you're such a beacon of light and a, a reminder to stay positive and to believe in yourself at all costs, which is what you had to do. And I'm just so grateful that you took time today to share your remarkable story and your message of of hope and positivity with everybody. So thank you so much for coming on today. Oh my gosh, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, And thank you, friends, for joining in and listening to this conversation. I hope that you find the light in today and in every day. 
And if you get a moment to rate the podcast or leave a review or share it with a friend, I would be so incredibly grateful. The more women that find this conversation and join in, the fuller this conversation will be. Thanks so much.